Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of the Be The Right Club Today podcast. Uh, Hal, how are you doing? I'm good, Jamie. Good. Uh, just looking forward to golf. Looking forward to the golf. And uh, big topic this week, um, at the time of recording, we're kind of halfway through the match play tournament. Um, what's your thoughts with the match play as a format going forward, Hal? Uh, I love match play, and I think it's a, a lost art, if you will, uh, I understand at the tour level, from a sponsorship level, you know they may lose some of the best players the first day, mm-hmm. and that hurts the uh, viewership. Uh, so from that level, I understand it. But at the club level, mm-hmm. I think everybody would enjoy match play a lot better. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know one hole, you're not out of it. Uh, it keeps the excitement level high. Yep. And uh, I hope, yeah. I wish uh, I could play more match play. Yeah. Match play, um, it's, it's more man v man, right? Whereas yeah. stroke play is always UV the course. There is other people there you got to think about in a stroke play situation, but match play is a little bit more like some, something like tennis. You're playing against a guy. Well, I think you end up playing a lot more conservative if you mm-hmm. play metal play all the time because you don't want to make a big number. Yep. And when you're playing match play, you know, foot's on the accelerator a lot more yeah and uh, that's exciting golf when it's Mm -hmm. like that plus if you make a mistake so what move on to the next hole it's It's only only one one hole hole. it's not five shots or something yeah exactly exactly and uh obviously you've had a lot of um experience playing Ryder cups in a a president's cup on the match play format what did how much more did you enjoy that style versus when you were playing the, the weekend week out well it's I always thought match play was fun because you were jockeying for position. You know, you're playing off of what the other guy did. You're playing the golf course differently, you know. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I played a lot of match play events whenever I was an amateur. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt like it kept me more aggressive. Yeah. Uh, metal play, if you do that for your whole life, you're going to end up being pretty conservative <laughs> in the end because you don't want to make a big number. You, you don't know, you're trying to hold, trouble, yeah. you get the ball in the hole as least number of shots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you don't take chances. Match play, you take a few chances. Mm-hmm. Get a little more aggressive. Yeah, you'll see that this weekend, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about this and they're still in the match play, but yep. uh, you'll see it as the week goes on, guys taking chances. Yeah. Austin Country Club's got a lot of great holes for that. That short, drivable one down by the water. Yeah. Um, that's a really cool hole for match play. Yeah, it's yeah. a great hole for match play. Yeah, it's a shame. I don't know what's going to happen with that event in the future. Um, sounds like, well, Austin <clears throat> definitely not hosting it going forward. But it'd be a shame if the tour lost its one and only match play event. Well, again, uh, yeah. it is a shame, but I understand sponsors want the best players there on a the weekend and metal play. Yeah, you know that's why the tour is doing what they're doing. You know they're they're going to the shorter field, no cut. Yep. and that way, the best players are there all weekend, all week long. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I like cuts. I like match play. I like you know, let the chips fall where they may. Yep. Yep. 
it's uh, all exciting. So, a uh, couple of little things here. Uh, again, if you watched on the YouTube, you would have seen the um, the little clips of the Darmore um, that we took uh, last week. So, stay tuned on that. Um, also, if you missed last week, just check out the start of episode six on the YouTube channel. You'll see some clips of the Darmore uh, taking shape. How? Yeah, it is yeah. taking shape. I'm enjoying. You're talking about Darmore. Yep. Darmore. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's uh you know, everybody's baby's the prettiest, <laughs> but uh, this, this is turning out fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, but it should. We're spending lots of time out there. Yeah. You know, it's not like I'm there every five weeks or something. I'm mm-hmm. there every day. Yeah. And so no dirt's getting moved that I'm not actually seeing my eyes aren't on it, you know. <laughs> exactly. Making sure it's uh, getting moved to the right place. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as I say, check on the YouTube channel to uh, check out those clips. And then for today's episode, um, we've got a great guest lined up, Trevor Immelman, uh, Masters champ, um, 11 worldwide wins on the tours. Um, what are you most looking forward to chatting to Trevor about? Well, a lot of things, you know. He's uh, he, he's uh, in the booth Mm-hmm. in the butler cabin this year for yep. the first time so mm-hmm. we'll talk about that and then uh you know the ball change i think he's uh, been noticing on twitter that he's gotten a lot of action on that so i'm sure he'll have something to say about that yep it's uh, going to be a, a really interesting discussion and uh yeah uh, we'll, we'll see you right after the break join us for our, our interview with trevor this episode is brought to you by holderness and borden let's talk about their polo shirts for a second the fit and fabrics are one of my favourites out there, but Holdness and Born really changed the game with the collar on their shirts. You can really spot a Holdness and Born collar. It has premium interfacing, sewn-in collar stays, and an English cut that is modern but not too aggressive. Ultimately, what does that all mean? It means you look more polished and more put together. A great collar can frame your face and give you great posture. A great collar also stays sharp, especially in the heat of the summer as you sweat, or maybe you're sweating over those nervy six-footers. Check them out at hbgolf.com and use code HSUTTON15 for 15% off your next order. Okay, everybody, for uh, for episode seven, we thought you'd bring uh, we thought we'd bring you all a, a big treat uh, this week. We have uh, a, a Masters champion and a familiar voice and face that you'll see a lot um, going forward on CBS. We have Trevor Elman joining us. Trevor, how are you? I'm doing very well, thanks, Jamie. It's uh, it's great to join you guys, you and Hal. It's awesome. I've listened to the podcast before, so glad to be on it finally. That's great. Well, thank you, oh, Trevor, for joining us. Yeah, go ahead, Hal. Well, we love your broadcasting. What's it? What's it been like? Is it fun? Yeah, thanks so much. It. Um, it really has been great, Hal. I gotta say, I really do enjoy it. Uh, it's it's been quite helpful to me, and I I see I feel quite fortunate that I feel like I've had a soft place to land after playing, um, you know, for two decades basically professionally. Uh, you know, I was a little concerned how what I would do with my time uh, once I stopped playing, but. Uh, I feel really fortunate that I've had the ability to, um, you know, get into something else that I really do enjoy, uh, 
and uh, and have a great time with it. So I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I love the team aspect of uh, working with a whole bunch of people uh, trying to put a good product out on TV uh, that uh, that people can enjoy. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's been an amazing experience for me so far. I hope that I'm able to do it for a long time to come. Well, when I, I did a little bit of it, and you know, I was uh, a little bit pushed to get a little bit controversial on what I said, and I just didn't enjoy that part of it. Uh, I'm not, not going to go into details, but you know, they they wanted the truth, and it depends on what truth you're talking about. You know, as a golfer, and I'm sure you, uh, you're understanding what I'm saying. You know, golf is difficult and even yeah. professionals make mistakes and, you know, and they're not proud of them, you know, and, and guess what? The whole world just got to see that mistake mm. and it's pretty obvious most of the time. So, you know, I don't know why I had a bit of cover up in me or I made an excuse for it or I gave the other side of it. Uh, of what the player was feeling instead of just making him look bad because I had to walk in the locker room later. Uh, what's your thoughts on all that? Yeah, look, that, um, that was all very valid points, and that's exactly the fine line that you need to walk as a broadcaster. You know, if you've played out there long enough, you know exactly how difficult it is, like you just touched on. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be in that role on TV – your 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 main goal for the for the show for the broadcast the thing that you need to be concerned about the most is making sure that it's entertaining for the viewer at home so how can you find a way to to scratch that itch and make sure that it makes people lean into the tv and want to watch but also portray you know how difficult that shot was players of every level hit bad shots they can still fight back. They can still bounce back and chip in from over there or what have you. Um, and so that is the fine line that you're constantly walking. And I found the best thing for me is, look, you've got to be honest at all times. If it's a bad shot, I know it's a bad shot. You know it's a bad shot watching at home. The player who's just hit it knows it's a terrible shot. He's probably reacting and showing you that, that he's disgusted or angry with it. And uh, you just find a way to move through that and explain what happened and um, and uh, what they're going to be facing next. So for me, uh, the things that are always rambling around in my head during a broadcast are hows and whys. Okay, how is the player doing this? Why is he doing this? That's what I'm trying to explain to the viewers at home. Uh, and then here's what we could look for down the line. You know, he's got two par fives in the next five holes. He's been driving it really well. So maybe we'll see an eagle and a birdie. Maybe he'll... Uh, you know, he's been missing tee shots to the left and there's out of bounds on the next tee shot that he's got to face. Let's keep an eye on that. How's he going to adjust for things like that? So uh, that's sort of the process that my mind um, is running in uh, to just try and involve the viewer, entertain the viewer and explain to them what's going on out there. And look, for me, um, I sort of visited quite a large spectrum of um, of the professional game while I was playing. I, I, I reached a high level by winning the Masters and by playing in majors for many years and playing President's Cups and stuff like that. But I also felt the opposite side. 
of playing horrendous golf and really struggling, struggling to keep my card, eventually losing my card on the PGA Tour. So I feel like I have a broad understanding of just how difficult it is and what these players at every level or every part of their career are experiencing. And so really, I'm just trying to find the right words to to explain that to the viewer, to try and give them a more um, rounded outlook of what's going on out there. Always challenging. Uh, <laughs> I don't have to tell you how challenging it is because it's happening fast. What most people yeah. don't understand is there's a lot going on in your ear. And, uh, you know, somebody's talking to you about where they're fixing to go next and are you ready and, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir by telling you that, but all the viewers out there that are listening to this, they don't understand that. So mm. give them some insight. Uh, yeah, there, there sure is a lot going on, and it seems to be more and more nowadays as, um, you know, us at CBS particularly, I can only speak for us, is you're trying to bring more and more technologies to the broadcast uh, to uh, to entertain the viewer even more. So, the skill that you really need to be good at is you need to be able to speak and listen at the same time. And, yeah. and that's the part that can be quite tricky is, uh, you know, you may be getting some kind of direction from the producer telling you, as you just touched on, where we're going next or we're about to go to commercial or something like that. Uh, but you're also listening to somebody else on the team or you're listening to the player caddy conversation and you're going to need to react off of that as well. So multitasking is really um, a pretty helpful skill. And what I see out of the best, you know, I've been fortunate to sit next to Jim Nance a bunch uh, so far this year. And it's fascinating how he's able to do three and four things at once and still do them well. He can gather information. He can uh, listen to his re researcher, Tom Spencer, he can pay attention to the broadcast and then fill in when the time is right. Uh, and so that's really the thing you need to be, need to be very good at. Um, the other thing that a lot of people may not get a feel for is it is completely different to what you and I are doing right now on this podcast. On a podcast, we're going to have 45 minutes, an hour to chat through different things, weave in and out of different directions. When you're calling golf, you've got two or three seconds and you've got a couple options. You can either fall back to a cliche, which is one of my pet peeves. You can keep quiet, which is sometimes a really good option <laughs> and just, just right. listen to the sounds that are out there. Or you can have something additive uh, to put in there that could describe something or give something, uh, give the people something to look for. So for me, it's much the same way as when I was playing. I'm, I'm, I'm uber prepared. I do a lot of research. I have a lot of people helping me gather more and more research. And then at that moment, it just becomes, okay, can I, can I remember the right little nugget at the right time that could could really hit home when a player is about to hit a shot or preparing to hit a shot. Um, and that, that's the beauty of it. Well, one of the things you described there that, that Jim Nance does so well and you do as well, uh, you've got multi 
going on, maybe three or four different things happening, but it looks like you're in control of the one you're doing. <laughs> and, you know, if we, you know, we can talk about commentating all we want to, but the truth is if people know how difficult that is to multitask like that, but to produce one look to where you look great doing it and it looks like you're right on point with what's going on right there, even though other things are going on in your ear. Well, you do a great job at it. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, you know, we try our best. We're very, very proud of the product that we try to put out there week in, week out on CBS. And I got to tell you, you know, you obviously know having been on and around the tour for many years, but for people who haven't had the opportunity to go to PGA tour events or see the TV compound, like it is a city in and of itself, right, right at the golf course with hundreds of people that are working around the clock to put these shows on TV. And uh, so there are countless men and women behind the camera that, that really do help make us look good and help make our jobs a lot easier. Well, I don't really want to say too much about this, but I've watched a little bit of the LIV telecast. They have a long ways to go. It's pretty <laughs> elementary, and, and y'all have hundreds, and they probably have 10. I don't know how many they have, but it looks like they're operating with too few of people as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, to be honest with you, haven't watched much, so I, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> well, I didn't figure you were going to comment on it. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm free to comment on it. So, <laughs> Trevor, um got a question what what is your uh how is your preparation going to be different for the masters versus maybe another different a different pga tour event are you going to approach that differently or do you approach each event you're covering the same jamie i think it's the same um you know you go out there and there's there's a few different pots that you're looking at of gathering information number one is the venue and the golf course so how much can you get to know the golf course, the ins and outs, where players may slip up, where there's areas for them to, to really uh, let their skills shine and pick up some shots? So you pay a lot of attention to that. And, you know, fortunately for me, uh, all these courses on tour, particularly Augusta National, I've played at many times. So I have some experience there that I can fall back on. And uh, then you have to go to the players themselves. What kind of form have they been in? Who's in the field? Now at the Masters, it's not finalized yet. We've still got a week um, left of qualifying. And I guess the player who wins Valera Texas Open can also get in if they aren't in already. Um, and so the players, once we know the final field, then you start to figure out these little nuggets. What are the storylines coming in? What is their form like coming in? And, uh, you know, this, that'll be a little different this year. Um, Hell just mentioned Liv. All these players are going to be coming together for the first time. Uh, a number of the players on their tour haven't played all that much this year. They've only played a couple of events out there. So... It can be hard to try and gather information to see exactly how they're playing. But that's the one area that you look at. Then you camp out uh, on and around the driving range, media center area, and you just start to gather little nuggets. You know, is 
let's take Rory McIlroy, for instance. He's going to be one of the main storylines going into the tournament, trying to become the sixth uh, man to win the Grand Slam, which is, you know, one of the most elite lists in all of sports. So it's going to be a massive storyline at a course that we feel his game is tailor-made for. You know, we, it's much like Ernie Els back in the day. We feel like he should be winning that tournament uh, multiple times. Uh, right now, some storylines with Rory are he's been struggling or saying that he's struggling to find a driver that he really feels comfortable with. So I'll be paying attention to that. I'll be down on the range. Does he have the club reps there trying to help him fit into something? Does he have multiple heads that he's trying? Is he considering uh, switching shafts to be able to get uh, the launch and spin ratio that he's looking for? Little things like that that you can pick up with all of those players, whether it be, let's call it 80 to 95, the final field will be. Um, you know, can you gather these little things and then, like I touched on earlier, find the right moment in the broadcast to bring that up? Uh, so... You know, let's say I've been watching Rory with this new driver. This is all hypothetical. But, uh, you know, I noticed out of the 15 drivers he hit, half of them went left of where he was aimed. And we come out onto the broadcast and we go to Rory and he's on the second tee. And I can be, if, if the time is right and I have enough before he pulls that club back, watched Rory on the range this morning seem to have a left miss and you cannot miss it left on this tee shot on two Whoosh, hits the shot either hits it left and i go that was pretty much what i saw on the range is something that he's gonna have to fight here for the remainder of this round before he can get this fixed or he pipes one down the middle and i'm like oh awesome he, he found a little something he made the adjustment and now he's got an iron into the green and he, in all likelihood is going to have an eagle look so you know, that's sort of the ebbs and flows of it and, and how I go about uh, preparing for the week. And then I have somebody, well, really, we have a research team at CBS and we have a, like a, like a, a group chat. And uh, this research team will just be pumping out little nuggets and things that they're seeing and stats that they're seeing. And if you find it pertinent or if you like that kind of thing, then um, it's there available for you. Uh, and, um, you know, you just try and find the right ebbs and flows. For me, as lead analyst, um, what I'm figuring out is it's very important for me to be glued to what is happening on the screen rather than be in the computer searching for stats or on my phone looking for nuggets. Uh, because it's much more important that I pay attention to, wow, why did, uh, why did for the first five holes, Jordan Spieth look at the ball on all of his putts from three feet, and now all of a sudden on the sixth hole, he's looking at the hole? Why, you know, what are the patterns that are happening? Uh, stuff like that. Oh, that guy's foot slipped on his downswing. So uh, for me, it's much more important uh, to be paying attention to the screen, really being uh, observant as to everything that's going on. And then in the commercial breaks is pretty much when I'll, I'll grab some information from the research team and just have it in the back of my mind in case I see something interesting that it pertains to. So, Trevor, 
when you're at Augusta uh, commentating? Will you take a moment to reflect and draw on memories? And I mean, you've got great memories there. You know, you uh, won the tournament. So uh, I'm sure there's some time for reflection, isn't there? Yeah, this there there will be for sure, Hal. It, uh, you know, I always get there quite early. In fact, I'm actually going up this weekend to play the course with my son and to get a look at the new 13th tee and just get a feel for how the course is playing a couple of weeks before the tournament. But then I'll go up again the Saturday before and I'll be there throughout the week. I'll play the course the Sunday before the tournament um, and, and then start to pay attention to what the players and caddies are having to say um, during the week to try and try and gather all that information. But um, with that comes a lot of extra time before we kick the broadcasts off on Thursday. As I'm moving around um, the, um, the facility there to reflect. And, uh, you know, it hits me on a number of different levels. Obviously, the obvious ones are as the golfer and, you know, growing up in South Africa and watching the Masters on TV uh, with the time change, you know, past midnight and watching all of my heroes play this course that uh, just seemed so impeccable on TV and then getting the opportunity to go and play there and then eventually win there. It's, it's, it's been such an incredible period of time for me as the golfer, all the things that I've experienced at Augusta National. But also on top of that, how um, I've watched my family grow and experience the Masters over the years. When I won, my son uh, was 18 months old and now he's going there as a 16-year-old. So the memories, and my daughter wasn't even born and now she's going there as a 12-year-old. So the memories of our family and watching my kids grow and every time they go to Augusta, learn new things about it and appreciate it more and enjoy it more. Uh, it, it, it's, um, it's been such a massive part of, um, you know, our family dynamic and the thread that is the tapestry of our family. So there is a ton, a ton of um, reminiscing going on. And for me this year, there's going to be an extra layer even. Uh, calling the action from Butler Cabin with Jim Nance. This will be my first time doing it um, from Butler Cabin. The last couple of years, I was down uh, behind the 15th green in a tower there. So now I get to experience calling the Masters from Butler Cabin, which will be uh, be a, a, a massive thrill. So a lot, a lot of great memories. Um, and there will be numerous times throughout the week. I haven't even mentioned the champions dinner, for instance. There'll be numerous times throughout the week where, where I, I sit back and go, wow, you know, what, what, what an amazing blessing this tournament and this club has been to my life. So you brought it up. So I'm going to ask the question champions dinner. What's it going to be like with some of the live players that are also masters winners uh first time they've kind of gathered like that what do you think that atmosphere is going to be like in there yeah it uh i'm not quite sure is is the answer that i can give you right now um 
it's going to be very interesting with um, with the layers of things that have been taking place over the last um, couple of years. Um, the thing that I keep falling back on for me and that I speak to a number of the other champions about when we do talk about this is at the end of the day, you know, this is Scotty Scheffler's evening and and this is the night that we're all supposed to be coming together to honor him and honor his achievement of, of winning the Masters. And so that's what's at the top of my mind. You know, I like to go to that dinner. This is going to be my 15th one. And I look forward to it for many reasons. But it's always great to go there and be a part of something special, the camaraderie with all the other champions, catching up with a number of guys that you don't see all that much because they're not out and about on the tour all the time anymore. I'm talking about, you know, the older champions like Gray Floyd and Tom Watson. You know, I only see those guys once or twice a year. And so um, that's an awesome opportunity for me to catch up with guys that were my heroes when I was growing up. Right. And so that's always great. And then um, to honor the champion and to to – see how that victory has changed their lives over the last 12 months and hear them speak about that. So, you know, that's how I'm going into it is, is I want to make sure that Scotty Scheffler is the main priority. And that's what everybody is, is talking about. Well, <clears throat> probably going to be different for you than it is some of the live players because you know they're the defectors so to speak and they're coming back into that environment so they may be a little bit uncomfortable i don't know whether they will or not and i'm not really looking for an answer out of you in that regard i was curious how you would feel you mentioned mm. scotty Kepler. he's playing unbelievable right now uh you know has he get, is he one of the best chippers you've ever seen in your life in ball Wow, isn't that the truth, Hal? You know, I actually said on the broadcast a couple of weeks ago, he and Jordan Spieth, they use, they're able to use the whole, the whole wedge so well, the bottom of the wedge so well. They use the bounce. They use the leading edge. They move the trajectory up and down. They control the spin so well. Uh, it, it really is, is a treat to be able to watch the two of them. And Scheffler, man, even even though he's coming in there as the defending champion and so rarely have we seen people um, repeat. I may be wrong here, but I'm wanting to say there's only three, Faldo, Nicholas and Woods. Uh, you know, don't shout at me if I get that wrong. But um, <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so rare. But I, I feel like he absolutely is the favorite coming in because he's playing such tremendous golf. He's so sharp with you look at how these designated events have panned out on the PGA Tour, where these top players are out there beating each other up every time they tee it up, going up. You know, it's like that old saying, iron sharpens iron. That is exactly what we're seeing out uh, with these designated events. And he just seems to always be in there. And he's won a couple times already. Uh, and he comes in with such confidence. And when you look at the other two guys um, that have been going back and forth with the world number one, Rory has seemed a little off the last couple of weeks, like I touched on earlier. 
seems to be a bit uncomfortable with the driver, which is his, his biggest weapon. And um, Rahm had such a brilliant start to the season, uh, but also in his last couple of events, the form just seemed to have tailed off. Maybe um, those two guys will be able to find something uh, leading into the Masters. But uh, Shucks, you'd be hard-pressed not to say that Scheffler is the absolute favourite going into this one. Trevor, um, I, want, I want to touch again, uh, go back to when you won the Masters in, in uh, 2008. Um, and me and Hal have talked a lot about this when Hal won the, the PGA uh, in 83, that he had to really overcome or really dig deep and show some mental strength to think how, I remember you saying you had to finish for like the, the pars in the last four holes to win that title. Trevor, for your Masters, I, uh, I remember you had that shot in 16 uh, that went in the water. Mm. 17, your approach shot just came up short in the bunker. And then 18, your ball finishing a divot on the fairway. So it felt like the golfing gods were throwing everything at you. So can you give a little insight to our viewers on what, what, how deep you had to dig in your mental strength to, to get over the line there? If you not, not get over the line, but like close it out and win. And did you have any like mental tricks that you'd use when you were playing to try and uh, keep focused and, and, and get the job done? Yeah, Jamie. So the trick, the trick for me, particularly that day, was I wasn't paying any attention to to the leaderboards, and that was how I kept my focus going into that uh, that weekend in two thousand and eight. We had a big storm come through, and uh, so we had a long delay on the Saturday as as that front moved through, and then there was a lot of wind right behind that. So we had gusts up to thirty five miles an hour on the Sunday. And uh, that golf course is, you know, it's tough enough at the best of times. And the, the areas where you have to hit your approach shots into are so small uh, that, you know, you throw a 35 mile an hour wind in there with that. And it is just all you can handle or all you would ever need to give you absolute fits. So I had made the decision the night before going into the final round with a two shot lead to stick to the strategy that had been working well throughout the week and not pay attention to the leaderboard and just play my game and then assess, you know, right toward the end what was going on. And uh, when I hit, I'll back up just before 16 uh, as I get to the rest of your question. And the 15th hole was played straight back into that uh, coolish breeze on the Sunday, and so I couldn't get up in two. I laid up down to the front left corner of the layup area. I've always enjoyed that layup much better. You get a flatter lie down there. And then I hit quite a nice wedge to about 10 feet behind the hole. And that was one of the last shots between that and 16 where there was going to be water in play. And as I was walking across the Sarazen Bridge, I got a standing ovation from the patrons, uh, two huge uh, stands there on either side of 15 green. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a little bit weird. You know, ordinarily the patrons will only give a standing ovation to somebody that's won that tournament. And so I noticed that and I could feel that, okay, you know, this is, this is headed in the right direction here. So Mr. Putt had made the par go to 16. And now that wind is heading hard off of the left. And um, I was between a smooth seven and a full eight. 
And I decided I would go with the smooth seven, aim it straight at the flag and let that wind just push it to the middle of the green. And if I got lucky, catch the ridge and feed it down there. And because I was taking some off of it, the ball just, it took off a little bit lower than what I really wanted. And too low of a flight for that breeze to actually catch it. Like I hit it too solid for the trajectory. And it was just the whole way it was like, oh, no, this thing's not going to budge. It's, just, you know, I've pulled it on that line just a touch and it's flighted down. And uh, the ball kicked down into the water. And literally it felt like all the blood had just dropped from my body. I was like, oh, my word, what, what, what have you? I actually said to myself, what have you done? <laughs> and, um, you know, my caddy was great. Neil Wallace, we worked together for nine years. So we had been together for a long time. And uh, he just picked up the bad bag and was like, okay, it, it's fine. Let's just, let's just drop down here and hit it on the green. So dropped down on the front of the tee, hit a nine iron onto the green, two putted for double and um, picked my ball out of the hole. And as I was walking to the 17th tee, I got a standing ovation again. And I was like, this is really weird. Like, <laughs> you know, I've just made a double and these people are cheering for me. And so I must, I must still be in a good spot. So immediately I, I recalibrated and I was like, okay, well, let's just find a way to par these next two holes. So I forgot about everything else. And then 17, I had a pretty good tee shot and it just crept into the second cut. And I was quite a long way down there. I only had a wedge in. And uh, I hit it really well on a beautiful line, hole location cut just over the bunker. And it must have come out a little bit softer than normal because of the, the first cut, the second cut, the longer, longer grass. Pitched up and spun back down into the bunker. And uh, fortunately for me, the ball was just a little on the upslope still. So, it, you know, without the pressure of trying to win a major championship, it's really an up and down that um, we would expect to get seven, eight, nine times out of ten. It's pretty basic. But every part of your body is shaking and trembling and your mind is racing. You know? So it makes it a little bit more difficult. But I got it out there to about three and a half, four feet, made the putt. And then as I was walking down off the back of the 17th green, uh, there's like an alleyway of people you've got to go through to get to the, the tee that's been pushed back now over the last few years. And um, so I was really close to the patrons. And, you know, there were people like reaching out and patting me on the back and saying, you know, well done, well done. You've got this. You've got this. So I, I could feel that that I had the lead. And um, so for me, once again, the thought process was, OK, just, you know, this is a very, very narrow tee shot nowadays. Probably the most narrow tee shot at, at Augusta National. Um, just get this thing in the fairway. You can make a four or a five from there. We can figure this out. But nothing else in the world matters right now other than this tee shot. I don't care how you do it. Just put this ball in the fairway. And somehow, some way, I hit one of my best tee shots of the week. Just took off like a laser beam with about a three-yard fade right down the middle. And... Um, you know, then I got down there and I saw the ball in the divot. And once again, my caddy was great. 
because I, 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 I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, what, what's going on here? And immediately he said, well, you knew this wasn't going to be easy winning, winning a major championship. So, uh, you know, let's find a way to get it done. You've got a perfect number for an eight iron. And uh, I had like mid-150s. You got a little uphill. Had a little help out of the left in the breeze. And so he was exactly right. Let rip on an eight iron. Put it back in your stance a little bit to increase the angle of attack. And this thing came out like it was on a tee. I mean, it was like a perfect ball flight for an eight iron. I, I can't even explain it, even though it was in quite a big divot. And, uh, you know, once I knew that the ball was down on that lower level and perfect position, I, I said to him, OK, you know, I know we got the lead, but what's what's the story? And he was like, you three ahead. It's all over. <laughs> and um, so that that was the process of those last four holes. And so it was it was feeling the energy of the crowd and 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 trying to understand what what they were telling me and how they were responding to me, uh, but also constantly refocusing back down into the present uh, like I did on that 18th tee where it was just like, you know, all the work you've done, all the stuff you've worked on over your swing over the years, all those little things, um, you know, has it helped you to get to this point? Absolutely. But does any of that matter right now? Hell no. You have to find a way to point this club face down the fairway and hit the middle of, uh, hit the middle of the club face. So, um, it's, it's really cool, even 15 years later on, uh, thinking about those moments. Uh, it uh, absolutely uh, was a thrill for me. Well, one of the things you said there that uh, I couldn't agree with you more, nothing else in the world matters at that point. And that's how you basically bring your focus in. And I think uh, having worked as hard as you had to be there to have that opportunity, I'm not just talking about, you know, the month prior to that. I'm talking about from the time you took up golf and those guys that you talked about being your heroes were important to you and you dreamed about being one of them one day. Mm. You were there. The requirement is the present and you were able to do it and that's why you were able to win. So, you know, you see that a lot where guys can't draw back into the present moment and their world is big. Yeah. You've seen that out there and they're thinking about everything and that's where they get lost. Uh, mm. You didn't. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Um, you say that a lot of times I think back to, uh, you know, I've heard Jack Nicholas say this many times is he said when he would get under pressure, or when he was coming down the stretch to win a tournament, which had happened many, many times, as we all know, right. there would always be a moment during that uh, back nine, that final nine on Sunday, where he would, he would take a step back and look around for a few seconds and go and see all the fans and, and feel the energy and be like, man, this is, this is fun. This is exactly what I want. This is how I want it. This is the position I want to be in. And he would acknowledge the situation and, and, um, and acknowledge the fact that this is why you practice. This is why you put the work in. I'm having a blast with this. 
And then that would help him focus and zone back into, okay, well, now I need to hit this three iron on the green, or now I need to make two birdies in the next four if I want to win, something like that. And um, I've always thought that that's, that's quite a cool tip to be able to separate yourself for, you know, 20 or 30 seconds and use that as a vehicle to get you back into the zone, back into uh, your sweet spot mentally to where you can perform your best. It's kind of a, a cool um, idea or tool that he used when he was playing. Well, it takes a special guy to be able to do that, to be able to do what you just said and then to be able to come back down to the moment and be in the yeah. present. Um, yeah. If somebody sees the bigness of the moment, they get lost in the bigness of the moment. And, yeah. uh, you know, the greats don't. They come back. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think one of the reasons, uh, you know, why they're great and and why they're able to have greatness over such a long period of time is, uh, and I'm talking about all sports, the research that I've done, the books I've read about it, is these athletes figure out what works for them. What is their secret? What are the things that, that, uh, that help them get to those spots? And then they, they wear those things out. And so they have such a keen awareness of, of um, what makes them tick in those moments. Uh, and, and then over the years, they have so much success with it that their belief in those things just grows and grows and grows. You know, when you speak to a Tom Watson or a Jack Nicholas or a Gary player about stuff like this, like they are absolute in what you need to do because that's what they did and it worked for them. Right. And, uh, so they know themselves so well over years and years of being battle hardened and figure, figuring out what works. Um, it's, it's quite cool. Jamie, you got anything you want to ask? I was going to bring up uh, before we finish here, um, you know, the recent announcement with the, uh, the USGA and the RNA about the ball. Um, I've read a lot of opinions and a lot of people are riled up about this, like fired yeah. up, in, uh, certainly Twitter, which they normally are on Twitter. But um, I'm just interested in your thoughts about the whole situation, Trevor. Oof. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a hornet's nest out there, Jamie. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've posed a few questions on Twitter over the weekend and wow, the, the spectrum of responses that I've received, it's, it's vast. A lot of people are wound up, like, like you say, um, just speaking to a few of the members at our club yesterday, I went down to hit a few balls and you know, some people came by and I asked them all the question about the ball, what they think. Just getting that take on it is 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 interesting. And you you see the vastness of where people stand on this from, hey, uh, the game is in a good spot right now. Why are we trying to do something like this to people saying, well, I'm concerned about the old course. I'm concerned about Marion. I'm concerned about why Augusta National has to move back the 13th tee by 40 yards. So I do think it should be a rollback. Uh, all the way to people saying, um, you know, as long as they don't touch my equipment, amateur golfers that is, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a senior golfer, I already play the forward tees. 
if they roll this back anymore, there's nowhere for me to go. I'll have to be teeing off on the front of the, the fairway. And so the, the ideas and thoughts and feelings behind this, it's, uh, wow, it's vast. I'm not 100% sure that I've fully baked out exactly where I am on it. You know, do I enjoy watching Rory McIlroy and players like that hit a 340, 350-yard drive? Yeah, I do. When you see it in person, it's incredibly impressive. I've been playing golf since I was five years old. And, and so I've watched a lot of golf balls being hit. When you go to one of these guys that have elite speed like that and you watch them hit, you have to train your eyes to move so much faster than they ever have before if you want to follow this ball. And um, it's impressive. I understand the work ethic and the talent in conjunction with the, um, the, the golf clubs and the technology that it takes to be able to hit a shot like that. Do I at times wish that uh, certain golf courses or certain holes on certain golf courses uh, weren't as easy now because of the technology? Sure. So it's a very, very tricky spot to be, I think. For me, I don't know if I'm old school or a traditionalist or maybe my opinion is wrong, but I am not totally for bifurcation. I think there's something cool about, um, you know, everybody being able to have access to the same equipment. Now, uh, you know, when I said that on, on social media, I got a lot of blowback on that too. Oh, well, you don't play the same equipment as us. And I'm like, sure, our equipment is dialed in. We're fortunate to have uh, club companies that can dial every club of ours in. But uh, although it's expensive and time-consuming, nowadays, amateur golfers have that at their disposal as well. I mean, you can go and get fitted and dial your driver in and dial your wedges in and, and go on launch monitors and see what gives you the best spin ratios and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that technology is available out there for everyday golfers if they want it. Um, and I just, I just enjoy the fact that, you know, we could all play by the same rules play with similar equipment and same equipment. I just don't really want to get to a spot where it's bifurcated, where the pros have to play certain stuff and the amateurs have to play certain stuff. So um, one of the, the half-baked ideas that I threw out there was, how about if they rolled the ball back for everybody and then you know we found a way for people to play up a set or two of tees? And that would probably help for 75% of the golfers. But like the example I gave earlier, um, for some of the older golfers who are already playing the most forward tee, it, it would create a problem. But really where we haven't gotten clarity from the USJ and the RNA yet is this 5% that they're talking about. A couple of things that I want to know. First of all, is 5% enough? If you're going to have one bite at the apple and you're really going to do this and you're going to rip the Band-Aid off and you're going to change the equipment that pros are able to play with, is 5% enough? Or in five or ten years, are you going to be complaining again that the, 
these guys are hitting the ball too far. So make sure if you're going to do it, you're going to do it properly. And secondly, if Rory McIlroy at in the mid-120s club head speed, which is extremely fast, is going to lose 5% on a tee shot, how is the club golfer with a 70-mile-an-hour swing speed, are they still going to lose 5%? Is it on like a linear scale, or is there some type of curve to this where the person who's driving at 180 yards are they actually going to see 5% or is it only going to be down to 1% for them with this golf ball and with the technology they're going to use to design this golf ball? So it's very hard to have an opinion that's set in stone when I feel like so many questions are unanswered. There's a part of me also, as much as what I love the RNA and the USGA, um, and I appreciate they how they volunteer their time to be shepherds of the sport and to run great championships. You know, I do also, there's a part of me that needs them to acknowledge that, you know, they helped us get to this position we're in right now. <laughs> you know, there's been professionals um, from Hal's era and between and before that have spoken about concerns of the ball starting to go too far. and. Uh, nothing was done for a long period of time. So um, I think it would be healthy for us to acknowledge that as well. Well, Trevor, the truth is it's not going to affect the higher handicap player nearly as much as it's going to affect the good player. And, you know, without swing speed, it's going to be negligible as to how much it's going to uh, affect a game. I've been one of these guys that have proposed, let's make the ball spin more. Mm. The game's more excited, exciting with the ball spins a little more, curves a little more, uh, makes us all have to think a little bit more. And, you know, there's not a harder shot in the world when the ball spun than to lay up on 15 and you lay up back where you put a little bit of spin at Augusta and you got that wind in your face. There's no harder shot in the world than that right there. Mm. All spin. Yeah. You've got a two-foot window that you can put that ball in. <laughs> and if you don't hit it far enough, it's coming back in the water. Yeah. And if you too far, then you don't really want to be where it's fixing to be. <laughs> yeah. That's the shot I'm talking about. So, yeah. you know, the ball spins a little bit more. I think it's more exciting. Uh I don't know. I think the USGA and RNA have been afraid of litigation for a long time because manufacturers want to make a lot of money off of, and, you know, Carson scared everybody to death a long time ago. Sure. So, you know, they were sitting on their hands doing nothing for a long time. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to say something that's kind of controversial. That's kind of where we're at in the world right now, where, you know, the policemen are afraid because we've got them so afraid to react now we don't even policemen don't even want to become a policeman anymore so what's it going to be if we have nobody saying that's wrong you can't do that yeah yeah it it is a it is a very interesting spot um you know for these governing bodies and like i said you know they they volunteer their time for the most part and, have, and really do 
try and shepherd our sport in the right direction. But, you know, I think we just need to make sure and get all the answers before we know exactly where we want to go. And if this rule, from what I understand so far, is only supposed to kick in in 2026, you know, I don't think five, if, if they decide to do it, I don't get the feeling that 5% is enough because, they're, they're, you know, these kids that are coming out of college now, they train specifically for speed. And, uh, you know, in another two, three years' time, um, they're going to have a, already accounted for this 5%. And so the guys are still going to be hitting it this far. And so we're still going to be complaining that, um, you know, the third hole at the old course is not playing long enough or the, you know, why is the fourth hole not as demanding as what it used to be in the eighties and nineties or, um, you know, uh, the holes at Shinnecock or holes at Marion aren't quite as intimidating as they used to be. So, you know, I just want to make sure that we don't do this two or three times. Let's not do it now 5% and do it again, 10 years, another five and another five. You know, that becomes a bit of a disaster for uh, the manufacturers that we also need to be in partnership, I mean, in with at the end of the day. You know, they're also a part of this equation and we want them to do well so, so that all of us can do well in whatever other aspect of the golfing landscape we are. So how can we find a way to do this to be able to keep everybody somewhat happy? Some will be, you know, more happy than others. But how can we find the path of least resistance to be able to come to some sort of resolution? That's what I'm interested in. Well, <clears throat> I hope that they do something that affects the consumer in a positive way because he's been ill. He, he's taken the brunt of this, to be honest with you. Uh, he's had to pay extra at his club because they're – restoring it and lengthening it and all yep. that sort of stuff. He's buying every new driver that comes out and hopeful that he's going to get five more yards and finds that he never does. You know, it's cost the consumer no telling how much. Yeah. Go through this process. And most of this is just helpful for the highly skilled player. And I wish that something could be more positive for the consumer. So yeah. and one of the reasons why I say, is you mentioned to me the other day when I texted you to get you on that you can't believe how poorly you play now. <laughs> That's right. And I may mention back to you that it's only going to get worse. Well, I'm in that first part. <laughs> you know, right. it's not getting any better. I'm going the other way. Can't hit it nearly as far. And, you know, I never was a guy that could hit it. You know, I could hit it 300 yards downwind, but I couldn't hit it 300 yards at will. And, you know, what I'm watching now is not a game that I know much about. So, you know, I, I and that hurts because, you know, I dug it out of the dirt. I didn't have a track man. I didn't have video that I could see every frame. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of us old guys that say, man, you know, you're not working hard enough like we did, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I totally, I totally understand what you're saying there. Uh, I was in the generation that was uh, kind of caught in between. So with, you know, the way I view it, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I view 
your generation was the way you guys used to train and practice was accuracy and distance control was always number one. How can I own my ball flight? How can I land this ball in the, you know, within a yard or two of where I'm needing? And, and accuracy was so important. Uh, and then as the technologies really started to boom during, during my era, a lot, of ours, a lot of us had to learn a new way to swing because it went from guys in your era generally hitting down on the ball uh, with the equipment and persimmon and the start of metal wood drivers to all of a sudden during my era, now players learning, wow, the balls aren't spinning as much. The driver heads are getting bigger. If we need to maximize this, we've got to start swinging up on it. So the technique slightly changed. And now all of a sudden we've got to this era where all of these guys that we're watching on tour right now, they were juniors and in college when the new equipment came out. And so they honed their skill. They acquired their skill and trained for this new equipment, which is now shifted from your era of accuracy number one to distance is number one for them. And they try to learn distance first. How can this driver swing be like a max one max rep in the gym it's just an all-out explosion and so it's about training speed first and then once they get the speed above 120 club speed above 180 ball speed then they're like okay is this ball going on the planet if not okay let me figure out a way to to dial this back to where i can keep it on the hole that i'm playing and so it's a total different mindset of the tour player nowadays. It really is incredible. Uh, it sure is. Uh, that's great to finish on right there, Trevor. It's been a pleasure having you. I don't have anything to add to it. That's why I'm ending it. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I've just got to move up a couple of tees. There you go. Still enjoy the game and still remind myself that at one time I could play pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, I wish I had that butter cut that you used to have when you were playing. That's what I'm looking for right now. Well, I hope you get it. And uh, one of the things that I'm hoping for is that it's a great experience being in Butler Cabin uh, this year from the uh, tower on the 15th hole. Tell Jim I said hello. He's a great guy. I know he's fun to work with. So. Thanks, Hal. Thanks. I, I can't wait for the Masters. It's going to be such a thrill. Uh, and uh, I had a great time chatting with you guys. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you so much, Trevor. And uh, yeah, have a great time at the Masters this year in Butler Cabin. Thanks. Thanks, Trevor.